Welcome to An Amber A Day, the podcast all about functional nutrition for PCOS. I'm Amber Fisher, a certified nutrition specialist and licensed dietitian nutritionist, and I have training in functional medicine. I also have PCOS, and on this podcast, we discuss PCOS in depth, the nutrition strategies for it, as well as the realities of living with it and making this lifestyle work. For further guidance and meal plan support, you can check out the show notes for links to my PCOS courses and programs. And if this podcast helps you, please do me a favor and leave me a review. Thank you so much for being here. Let's get into today's episode. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to an Amber a Day, the functional nutrition podcast, and I'm Amber Fisher. I'm recording this podcast from my home this morning, so if you hear the sounds of birds chirping, it's because I'm right near a tree where I have a bird feeder, and I think they're hungry. So um, this morning, I just wanted to take a little time and do a podcast about PCOS. This is kind of the kick I've been on with my Facebook lately and something I've been thinking a lot about because I've been having a lot of clients with this issue present to me in my office. Um, Which speaking of, if you didn't know, I am moving offices. So I'm in the middle of that right now. I'm actually supposed to be moving this next week and getting my own place. So uh, if you haven't heard anything about that and you have an appointment with me, Um, send me a text and let me know so I can send you the new address. But hopefully I've let all of you know about the situation. Um, I'm really excited about the move. I think um, it's going to be good for me. It's upward movement in my career and I'm really excited about it. Um, But I'm still going to be collaborating and staying close with Kay Spears and her team. And we're going to do a lot together. I'm actually going to be right down the road from uh, her part of her team and she's going to be partially at the place that we've been at and then partially in a new location as well. So there's a lot of cool changes and stuff happening for both of us and it was a good time for me to kind of strike out on my own. So I'm excited about that. Um, But speaking of PCOS, let's talk about first what is that because you may be listening to this podcast and you know if you're like me When I get hooked on a podcast, I listen to every episode, whether or not it applies to me. So if you're like, what the heck is PCOS? PCOS is a fertility condition. It's actually the most common gynecological disorder in the United States. And I believe in other developed world countries as well. It's very, very common. Up to like 15% of women deal with PCOS. And what it stands for is polycystic ovary syndrome. So people pronounce it different ways. The most common way that I've heard is PCOS. uh, But I also hear like PCOS, PCO, um, PCO. So it just sort of depends on where you get your information as to how you pronounce it. But I call it PCOS. And PCOS stands for polycystic ovary syndrome. And that is a condition that revolves around small cysts, multiple small cysts forming on the ovaries. And that's really the biggest thing that 
women with PCOS have in common is that we all have these, when you look at the ovaries under ultrasound, we've all got these ovaries that look like strings of pearls. They just have tons of little undeveloped eggs that um, are really, have turned into cysts and um, we always have those. So it's not like you have them at one point in the month and then you don't have them another point in the month. They're constant. And um, how do we get those? Well, there's a lot of different things that could be going on. But what we know, what the research has said is that for the majority of women with PCOS at least, there's an insulin issue. So most women with PCOS have something called hyperinsulinemia, which means that no matter what they eat, you know, whether they're eating something that's low in sugars or high in sugars, they produce more insulin with that meal than an average person without this issue. So that's why, that is the reason why a lower glycemic or a lower sugar diet is always recommended for women with PCOS, even women with PCOS who are normal weight, because this, this, part of it is is incredibly common amongst women with PCOS. And so even if you're normal weight, which, you know, a good amount, I think um, I'm forgetting the statistics off the top of my head, but a good amount of women with PCOS, I think about 40 to 60% are normal weight. And so it's kind of a mis- misconception that PCOS is only a an overweight woman's problem. Certainly, there are a lot of women with PCOS who are overweight, and many of them develop PCOS because they are overweight, Uh, but there are a lot of normal weight women with PCOS, Um, and those of us who are normal weight with PCOS, we still struggle with a lot of the same things that the overweight PCOS women do, things like the insulin resistance that make it difficult to lose weight and easy to gain it. and then, you know, there's a group of women with PCOS who are who are actually underweight. And in that group, um, you know, my view on that is that it's kind of a different thing going on there. Like, you can develop PCOS from a variety of different stimuli happening in your life, and all of those things throw off your insulin balance, which then throws off, you know, your hormonal balance, which then in turn messes with your ovaries. And when you've got these tiny cysts on your ovaries and they're producing these hormones and your body's not in balance, it kind of keeps the cycle going. So with that said, um, there's no cure for this disorder. And it's not like something you can take a pill and then it goes away. Uh, Although many women with PCOS are recommended to take hormonal birth control. And there are a lot of reasons behind that. Um, The first... The biggest reason is to regulate cycles. Uh, That way you're having a period every month, and when you're having a period every month, you're less likely to develop endometrial cancers or um, some of these other things. It also down-regulates, you know, a lot of your hormones. It suppresses excess estrogens and things like that, so it can help with stuff like acne uh, that gets pretty bad with PCOS in some women. It can help with the um, hirsutism, like the the facial hair and the dark body hair that that these women sometimes get. And it can help with like painful long periods, cramping, stuff like that. So that's why, you know, it's it's sort of this stopgap measure that 
when you find out that you have PCOS, and a lot of times doctors don't even look at your ovaries to diagnose you with PCOS. They just go based off of symptoms. You only have to meet a couple of requirements to be diagnosed with PCOS. You know, you either have excess body hair, um, you've got um, excess body weight, you carry it around the middle, you know, there's all these different kind of things that they can use to help diagnose whether you are dealing with um, PCOS, irregular periods, stuff like that. So sometimes they don't even do an ultrasound. But, you know, I I would recommend, if you can, having an ultrasound done just to see, you know, because there have been cases that I've heard of of women who were diagnosed with PCOS, and then when they looked at their ovaries, they didn't actually have cystic ovaries. And uh, while, you know, they're still technically designated as PCOS, they don't have polycystic ovaries. So that's what, that and, and a few other reasons are kind of things that make me and a lot of others who work in this industry think that PCOS is really kind of a basket diagnosis. It's sort of like fibromyalgia. And I tell my women with PCOS this, it's a lot like fibromyalgia. It's like, you know, you have these symptoms and they're sort of related. A lot of women have similar ones. So we know it's like a syndrome. It's something going on with the hormones. It's something going on with the insulin. Um, But we don't really know how it starts or kind of why it maintains like we don't know a ton about it so we put you in this basket called PCOS and just tell you like hey uh go on a low glycemic diet and uh, take birth control and then when you get ready to have babies be prepared to have to do assisted reproduction and you're kind of like oh okay So now that I have been diagnosed with this condition, automatically uh, I'm going to be financially strained for a good portion of the next, uh, depending on how old you are, 20 to 30 years. uh, Because, you know, if I want to have children, which a fair amount of women do want to have children, I'm going to be in the cog of the assisted reproduction realm, which is an incredibly expensive, uh, stressful, difficult place to be. Um, not that it's, you know, a bad thing. Like if you are there and that's what you need to, to have your baby, there's nothing wrong with that. And a lot of women with PCOS do end up needing some support with that. And that's fine. Um, but it's kind of a shock, you know, um, I have PCOS, so, and, and I'll, I, I share this with my, with, with my PCOS clients, but I, I also am pretty open about it um, with people because I want people to know that the reason that I got into nutrition in the first place is because I have my own health issues that sort of um, inspired me to look into nutrition and to see how nutrition is really the foundation of health and to try to get myself into better, better health. So, Uh, I remember when I was diagnosed, you know, I'd always had issues, irregular periods, uh, you know, excess facial hair, stuff that was annoying, made me feel really messed with my self-confidence, all that kind of stuff. And um, I was diagnosed in college. And I remember in college, you know, of course, I didn't know anything back then about nutrition at all. Like, I, I loved 
eating fast food and um, I had a huge sweet tooth. Still do have a sweet tooth that I have to battle with. Um, but the fast food thing was like life, you know. And so um, in, in, in college, who thinks about what they're eating? You know, I remember I, I remember in college there was like a salad bar and I never touched that thing. Like I, I had a f- horrible food aversions to raw uh, leafy greens like lettuce and spinach and stuff. So I remember and Margot, Margot's my friend from college. If you're listening to this, she listens to the podcast. If you're listening to this, I shall remind you of the story of when I decided that I needed to start learning to like salad. So I would take a crouton, I would put honey mustard on it, and then I'd wrap it in a spinach leaf and eat that. And it would still like make me gag, even though it hardly tasted like spinach, but it was something about the texture. And and I'm honest with my clients that to this day, I fight with myself to eat raw vegetables, salads, and stuff like that. It's not, it's just not something I like. And over the years, especially since I've been into nutrition, it's, my taste buds have changed a lot. And sometimes now I even crave salad, you know, and, um, but it's still not my, it's not my favorite thing in the world. I eat it because I know that it's good for me. And I think a lot of us who weren't maybe raised eating a lot of stuff like that, struggle with that. That That's something that a lot of my clients have to work on is overcoming food aversions. And, um, you know, this is an aside, but the best way to do that, the absolute best way to do that, just keep forcing yourself to eat it, even if it makes you gag, even if you think it's disgusting, even if you think you'll never like it. Trust me, I went through that. And eventually you will start to like these foods. It will become so much easier. Vegetables, I don't think, I mean, there are very few people who like actually love eating vegetables, even healthy people. Like healthy people, there are a few. I've met some, I've met some interesting people over the years. And there are definitely some people who are like, oh, I love vegetables. Like I could live off just vegetables and, and I love them cooked. I love them raw. Like I just love them. That's great for you guys. But the rest of us are sitting over here like, okay, I have to get a certain amount of vegetables, certain amount of nutrient density into my diet. So, you know, I'm going to sit down with my plate. I'm going to eat those first or I'm going to eat them, you know, in combination with something like, you know, when I pick up a piece of my chicken, I'm going to pick up a spear of broccoli too and eat that. And that's like a way to kind of like make it taste better and get it down. And, you know, a lot of us are like that. So don't let healthy people fool you into thinking that like they were born this way and they just love veggies. Like some of them do. But a lot of us, it's not our favorite thing in the world. We just do it because we know it's good for us and we have to. And that's a mindset thing that a lot of Americans just don't buy into. They think about food as being pleasure and that food is something that you're supposed to just absolutely love everything that you put into your mouth. And if that's the case, you're living in a fantasy world because the world that we live in, the food industry that we live in is designed to create hyper palatable foods that have a lot of salt and a lot of sugar and a lot of fat in them. We call that the trifecta. And they're very, very delicious. And so everything in comparison to them, especially like a raw, fresh vegetable, is not going to taste as good to your brain. It's just not. 
the only exception to that I would say is like if you're a healthy person and you've gotten into the habit of eating healthy foods and then you kind of fall off the wagon and you eat like I've had clients who've done this where they eat they start eating fast food again and like they get into this spiral where they're just eating bad for a few weeks at a time and then all of a sudden they'll come to me and they'll be like yeah I sort of fell off but you know what's weird I started craving salad I started craving vegetables and I'm like, yes, see, your body knows what it needs and it just go with that. Feed it vegetables. So this podcast was not supposed to be an advertisement for vegetables, but eat your vegetables. Uh, but anyway, I remember when I was diagnosed with PCOS and um, at the time I had a lot of blood sugar issues that I did not realize were blood sugar issues. I would get hypoglycemic very often. And uh, a lot of women with PCOS deal with this, and it's a side effect of the insulin issues. And they don't realize that that's what's going on. So hypoglycemia is when your blood sugar gets too low. And it can absolutely happen even if you don't get hyperglycemic. So uh, hyperglycemic would be when your blood sugar gets too high. So when you have PCOS, you know, yes, there is a slightly higher risk for type 2 diabetes. But in my experience, what a lot of women with PCOS deal with more than anything is because they create all that extra insulin um, and they're eating just like anybody else and they're, you know, they're probably eating too many carbs and things like that, what will happen is that they'll overproduce insulin for that meal and their blood sugar will get too low. And so you'll get weak and shaky between meals, um, feel like you maybe are going to pass out, get sweaty. Like everybody has different experiences of how that goes for them. But those are some of the symptoms. And that's a really good sign that your insulin and blood sugar are very imbalanced. And so there's definitely nutrition work that needs to be done there on balancing your diet. Uh, so if, you, you know, if you're going through that, that's a good sign that you're actively in a state where PCOS can thrive and make your life miserable. Um, but there are women that I see who come in and they don't have that. You know, that's not an issue for them. But still, they've got kind of raging symptoms. Um, the one that tends to bother women the most is, of course, the weight. Um, weight gain, unexplained weight gain, extreme difficulty losing weight, especially by the methods that other people would use, like, you know, Weight Watchers or um, a low-fat diet do not work well for PCOS. It's just too much allowance of carbohydrate. And that's not to say that with PCOS you have to be keto. Um, I think that's kind of become this misconception now that now that keto is this big thing. And uh, don't get me wrong. I mean, I don't hate keto. I know I've been, I've been saying that a lot lately. I don't hate keto. I just, I feel like whenever a diet is really popular, people, you know, they either idolize it or villainize it. And so I see people on the internet on both sides. You know, you got people who like, I'll never, ever not eat keto again. And then you have people who are like blaming keto for like the downfall of humanity. It's like, okay, guys, like there's some benefits to keto. Like it works well for a lot of people. A lot of different people groups really thrive on it. And and I'm sorry, but people say, like, it's not a sustainable thing. For some people, it is. And I've had clients like that who they love keto. They like the way they feel on it. They like the foods. And 
they want to stay on it. So if they do, and as long as I can get enough nutrient density into them, that they're getting enough fiber and all that stuff, uh, I don't see anything wrong with that. So, but on the other hand, it's like, it's not the end all be all. So with PCOS, it's like just because keto gets your blood sugar down and gets less insulin into your system doesn't mean it's the best diet to go to for you. Um, with PCOS, I like to focus more on a nutrient-dense kind of fertility diet. Because PCOS is a fertility issue, fundamentally, um, I'm always thinking about how can we improve egg quality? Uh, how can we improve antioxidant status? How can we improve, of course, blood sugar, because that's very important for fertility as well. But how can we do all those things kind of at once? And um, unless the woman is very overweight with PCOS, I usually don't go first to keto. Um, I usually go more to kind of that like nutrient dense, but still lower carbohydrate diet, um, definitely lower glycemic. And that works really well. And, um, you know, but there are times when I'll, I'll mess with that protocol and I'll start with keto because there's just a lot of weight to get off. And it's a really good way to get weight off with PCOS women because, it keeps your insulin super low. And so that can no longer be a factor in you holding on to weight. So it all depends on the woman's goals. And um, a lot of women do see me and they're kind of ready to get started on fertility treatments or they're actively trying to get pregnant or uh, they have a plan in the next six months to a year to start fertility treatments. And so in those cases, I, I go more with the fertility type approach. Um, and if, you know, it's more like a weight loss situation and the fertility stuff is sort of down the line a ways, then I might start with keto and then transition them. So there's different ways to tackle this and, and both ways have merits. Uh, but when it comes to to PCOS, nutrition is absolutely fundamental. So my belief as a nutritionist, and of course I'm biased, is that nutrition is at the root. It's the foundation of all health. And so any chronic disease that we're looking at, anyone at all, um, has a nutritional basis, either in it how it got started or at least in managing it. I mean, I can't think of a condition where Nutrition couldn't at least help a ton in reducing symptoms, reducing flare-ups, and all that. And I can think of several conditions where there is ample research that nutrition can reverse uh, symptomology and can, like, really get to the bottom of how these things have started and how they're maintaining themselves. That's not to say that you know, nutrition is always the cure or that it's this magic thing. I mean, it's incredibly hard work, first of all. And, you know, if you've got a chronic disease, um, your diet plan is going to be difficult. But even if you don't, even if you can't mentally get your head wrapped around that, um, just improving the quality of the things you eat makes can make just a world of difference. So uh, that's the cool thing about nutrition too. I think it, like it has therapeutic uses where I can put people on these kind of complicated um, research-based diets that are meant to reduce symptoms and even like improve blood work and all that stuff. 
and get great results. But then people who really just, they're not in the mental headspace for that. If I can just get them off of processed food, get them eating whole foods, stuff like that, it still makes a huge difference in how they feel and gives them more energy. And a lot of times when people start feeling better and having more energy, then they're ready to kind of go deeper with nutrition and say, okay, well, how can we, you know, play with this, like play with food sensitivities and things like that to kind of boost the immune system health or how can we deal with my leaky gut or whatever it may be. So there's really a lot of cool things that that you can do with nutrition. And when it comes to PCOS, nutrition is the first step in reducing symptoms. So the main key is get that insulin down. And I won't say by whatever means necessary, because obviously the best way to get insulin as low as possible would be a keto diet. Uh, But there's also this other important goal of improving like egg quality, improving um, antioxidant status, all these things that are going to help us detox from the excess hormones and the imbalances of hormones in the body. So a diet with a lot of phenols, a lot, which are components of vegetables and fruits, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff is going to be just as important long-term for someone with PCOS as reducing their insulin. And the great thing is that vegetables, um, most fruits, and especially almost all vegetables, they're very low in, in carbohydrates when you consider their fiber impact. So they're the best things that you can eat. Um, and then, you know, of course, like quality proteins and things like that. Healthy fats are good too. Um, but there's just a lot of uh, different factors that go into a good PCOS diet. But doing that can make all the difference. And I've seen that over and over with my clients because this is something that I put out to the world that I specialize in. And um, the reason that I say that is because I've done a ton of research, a lot of it uh, based on myself, um, just trying to figure out, okay, what really is the best approach for me? I've done a lot of research and learned a lot of things that can be applied to other women. And so because I've put that out there that I specialize in that, I I tend to get a lot of clients who are seeking help with that. And it's really great. It's like this, it's like the sisterhood of, of women with this issue. And I just, I love learning about different women and how their bodies respond to PCOS. So, um, you know, I've had women come in who are in the middle of fertility treatments and they want to kind of boost their chances. I've had women come in who are looking towards fertility treatments, but they have to be a certain weight or a certain BMI in order to qualify. I've had women come in who are um, trying naturally to get pregnant or who are on birth control and not even thinking about getting pregnant. And there have been a couple of my clients who have gotten pregnant after a few months of kind of working on their nutrition. Is it coincidence? Is it the nutrition? You know, pregnancy is a mystery. And there's probably uh, a little of both. You know, there's probably some fate involved. There's probably, um, but, but taking care of themselves, taking care of their nutrition, I think is such an important step. Not only that, it can improve fertility, it can improve cycle length, it can improve um, ovulation rates, 
but and and help you lose weight obviously which are all important for increasing your chances of being able to get pregnant but i think it also signals to your mind and to your spirit that you're ready for increased responsibility in your life i mean you are putting basically you're putting your fertility and your health first above what sounds good for you to eat and what you want to do and um you know a lot of women with PCOS because of the insulin issues they struggle really bad with uh carb cravings sugar cravings and and um you know this is something that type 2 diabetics struggle with too and i always tell my clients that's really not your fault so i don't want you to beat yourself up that you know you're different than other people and you have these stronger cravings uh, because it's your body that's doing that to you. Your body's upregulating all these different signals to tell you to eat this stuff because you have this insulin issue. Um, but just because it's not your fault doesn't mean that you don't now that you know have the responsibility to take care of it. So, you know, now that you know that this is an issue for you, you it's back on your back. You have to say, okay, you know, with PCOS, I know that weight loss is going to be more difficult. And I can tell you that even on a even on the best nutrition plan with the most, um, you know, with women who are doing everything just right, the weight loss is still slower than it would be in someone who didn't have this condition. You know, that's the insulin part of it. That's the insulin resistance part of it. And over time, these things get better and it gets easier. But... Um, you know, it can be discouraging because you see other women and they get, you know, they lose weight quickly and you're like, wait, why can't I? And you want to give up, but you can't do that. Got to keep plugging along because you will get there. It just takes a little longer. Um, but the responsibility is on you when you have the tools, when you know what's going on, when you know where you need to be. It becomes your responsibility to take that seriously. And um, so there's there's an attitude out there with some women with PCOS that sort of, there's nothing I can do to control this. It's genetic. Um, and, you know, this doesn't just go for PCOS. This goes for a lot of chronic illnesses. It's genetic. It runs in the family. I can't do anything about it. It's not my fault. Um, and so I give up and I'm just going to live with it. I'm just going to accept it and deal with it. Okay. I don't think that that is the best attitude to take towards any chronic illness. You should never let it win. It's true that if you have PCOS, unless we find some like miraculous cure or we one day wake up in a completely environmentally different world that doesn't have plastics and all these hormone disruptors in it, you'll probably have it all your life. And yes, you, you do need to get to a point where you kind of accept that, but not accept it in the sense of like, okay, I accept and I give up. Accept in the sense like, okay, I accept that this is an issue for me. So I'm not going to ignore it anymore. I'm going to do everything that I can to live my healthiest, best life in spite of this. And um, there's a lot that can be done. The minute you give up on this stuff, that's when things start spiraling out of control. And so 
um, I don't find that attitude to be healthy. There is a realm of genetic research called epigenetics. And uh, probably many of you have heard of this, but it's the idea that we can turn on and off different genes based on our environment. So, you know, for a long time, we always kind of, we thought, well, all diseases must be genetically based, so they must run in families. And, and if they're genetic, then there's really nothing we can do about them except like maybe we can find a pill or something to kind of reduce the symptoms. Um, but and then we started learning about, you know, when we started to see, well, okay, sometimes though, if people really take care of themselves, they, they, they don't develop these conditions or they reverse a condition or something like that. So, you know, there must be something going on there. Well, this is where epigenetics comes in. You know, this PCOS could run in your family, let's say. And, and, and in a lot of cases, it often does run in families. And so, yeah, you've got that genetic predisposition, but if you take care of yourself and you pay attention to your nutrition, um, you know, you can set yourself up for success. You can have much better outcomes than someone who doesn't pay attention to this stuff. And so we don't know a lot about epigenetics yet. It's, it's, it's newer stuff, but there's a lot of promise with it. And I think at some point we're going to come up with, you know, some different ways, maybe, you know, approaches that can really, really help with PCOS, especially. And I want to be, you know, part of that, um, part of that movement. But this is, you know, the case for a lot of different diseases. So, you know, genes can turn on and can turn off and you don't necessarily have to pass certain genes down either, um, to the next generation. So, I think it's important that we take care of ourselves, not just for us and for vanity reasons or for fertility reasons for us, but for our future daughters too. We have to look at the environment we live in also. If you haven't listened to the podcast that I did with Jennifer Torres uh, from Beauty Counter, I would highly suggest that one because women with PCOS often have uh, higher levels of these kind of hormone disruptors in their systems. And so, you know, those things come from, yeah, plastics, cans, things like that, but also from um, beauty products, lotions, shampoos, things that you're putting on your skin. Your skin's your largest organ and it's absorbent. So stuff can get through. And it's important to um, pay attention to that and Look at trying to make your home as clean an environment as is possible to have in the modern context. Um, and don't believe anyone who tells you that it doesn't matter because it absolutely does matter. Um, and if you look at the trajectory of health, human health over the last 50 years, uh, it's pretty, it can be terrifying, um, if you look at how common fertility conditions in general are in these younger generations, it's pretty terrifying. But what's cool is that we're at this place, and I sense this with people, we're at this place where we're kind of starting to shift and we're saying, okay, we're recognizing that there's a problem. And that's the first step to making positive changes. We're recognizing that there's a problem with the way that we 
oversee and manage our food supply with the way that we create uh, products for convenience and not for health, with the way that we prioritize things being, you know, beauty products lasting a long time or whatever over whether they have carcinogens in them or are contaminated with heavy metals. I mean, we're all kind of starting to turn on to that different way of thinking. And when we all do this collectively, we can turn the ship around. So I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've noticed this, that a lot of people are starting to think more about the food that they eat and where it comes from and how it's processed and the soil that it's grown in and all of that. And those of us who are more into this stuff, we're teaching other people. And uh, things are changing. I see... Oh, Jen and I were talking about how, you know, and, and, and of course it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword, but I think it's a positive sign that a lot of these big companies are buying out organic brands or they're starting to offer more organic products or products that don't contain, you know, sugar or whatever. They're, we're, we vote with our forks. And um, in a capitalist society, you know, it's all about supply and demand. And so if you don't buy the stuff that you know is unhealthy, they'll stop making it. And they'll make other options that are healthier options. And uh, we just have to be diligent because, of course, when big companies get involved, you know, they love to cut corners. So we have to be diligent about looking at things, calling companies and all that. And those of us who, who have more knowledge about these things, we need to get it out there to the public. But it's a good sign. They're listening to us. And, uh, you know, if you think about the grocery store just like 15 years ago, the difference in the amount of healthy products that there are now versus 15 years ago is staggering. So I'm encouraged as a nutritionist to see these options and to see these options not just, um, you know, at Whole Foods or these kind of unapproachable, large, um, expensive chains, but also at your regular grocery store. Like, you know, I mean, say what you will about different grocery store chains. I probably shouldn't talk about specifics, but there's one in, in particular that's not known for being the healthiest grocery chain in the world. They've got grass-fed meat there now. Is it grass-fed and grass-finished? Probably not. It's probably not the greatest thing in the world. Is it better than the meat that you were getting there before? Absolutely. So these are little changes, and over time, they build into big changes. And you can hear my dogs in the background. They agree. But on that note, uh, I think I'm going to call it quits on this podcast. Uh, if you have questions about PCOS or want to learn more about nutrition and how it can benefit you, um, give me a uh, call or you know, send me a text, email me. Get on my website, make an appointment. I've got this cool new system now where you can actually go on my website and you can make your own appointment. 
uh, for a first consultation. First consultations with me are free uh, unless we decide that we're going to work together and, you know, then I'll go over pricing and all that with you. Um, but you do get a free first consultation with me. You can go on my website, amberfishernutrition.com, and book it yourself. And it can be in person at my new cool office or it can be um, over the phone if you're not local. And, um, you know, it's a good chance for us to meet and talk and I can give you an idea of where I think, what direction I think you need to uh, go with your health. So um, if that's something you're interested in, look in the description box and you'll see some links to different things. If not, uh, keep listening to the podcast, keep sharing and liking, follow me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Amber Fisher Nutrition. That's where I'm most active. I have got to get into Instagram more, but I am so overwhelmed with blogging and podcasting and actually doing my job of seeing clients that uh, I neglect poor little Instagram. So um, as an aside, if any of you out there are students or looking for some type of nutrition internship, you want to get some practice with you know, social media stuff. I'm kind of looking right now for an intern who maybe might want to write recipes for me. Um, you know, you would write them, I would edit them, and then we could probably put your information out there on the internet so people would know it was your recipe, not mine, but I'd like to be able to have it on my website. Um, recipes are something that I would like to have more of, but believe it or not, I am not an expert cook. I am a decent cook, but I'm not a recipe maker. So um, I need somebody who who's interested in all that. So if that's something you're interested in, reach out to me because I'm, I'm kind of putting the feelers out there for somebody uh, to help me for a little while, get some experience and stuff. Okay. Thank you all for listening. I hope you have a great rest of your week. Bye-bye. If you learned something today or you enjoyed today's episode or both, I'd love it if you would leave me an iTunes review and share this with a friend. If this brought up a question for you that you would like to hear me answer, there is a Google form that you can use to ask me any question you want, and I might answer it here on the podcast. I do it all the time, and I would love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.